0: Good morning. Thank you to JR and the band for leading us. Uh, My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City. I'm glad that you're with us, um, whether here in person or online on YouTube. I saw there's a bunch of folks joining on YouTube. I also know that there are a bunch of folks who are on YouTube because they're not feeling well. So, um, prayers all around for for everyone in this season. Uh, I want to start by asking you to think back over your week and think of one high and one low, one high and one low. I'm not going to ask you to share it out loud or with a neighbor, so be at ease, my introvert siblings. (laughs) One high and one low from your week. It might be something that happened to you. It might be something you saw or read or listened to, a high and a low. My high from this week was time spent with people. I know that's a broad category, so I kind of cheated. But it was time spent with people. Um, Met up with a friend I hadn't talked to in years. I um, met with friends from church. I hung out with old friends. Had our small group online. counseled a couple getting married soon. Uh, Some of these were in person. Some were on Zoom. Some were just phone calls. Uh, I got to chat with my mom and dad in Hong Kong very briefly, who should be watching right now, at least my mom. And... um, I even got to go to my son Daniel's school and read a couple of books to their class, which was really chaotic. (laughs) Um, But my cup was well-filled by the people I got to spend time with this week. Uh, My low from this week, as um, perhaps for many of you, was all of the awful news, all the things that are happening. Um, Israel's continued siege of Gaza, thousands of Palestinians dead and wounded, thousands of lives lost. I couldn't sleep until the early hours of the morning on Friday night because um, there was too much going on. Um, and then here in America, as JR already alluded to, another day, another mass shooting, this, this time in Maine, and all of the things happening here in D.C., and all the things not happening that should, should be happening. It's, it's hard to know when to watch and when to turn away. right? It's hard to know when to say or do something and when to refrain it's hard to know what to do with all of the feelings, all of the emotions, how to hold the joy and the sorrow together with seemingly so many other things, with too many other things. And yet that has been exactly what our walk through this Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes has been about. It's been about holding hard things together, holding hard things together. Nine weeks ago, we met Kohelet, the teacher. Our guide on this journey, and we were introduced to the catchphrase of the book: "Everything is meaningless." Everything is meaningless. The Hebrew word "havel," meaning meaningless or pointless, or as Rabbi Michael Fox would say, absurd. Everything is absurd. It's a word that challenges us to live in paradox, to hold seemingly contradictory truths together: joy and sorrow. Life is vapor, and it is that very fact that it is here today and gone tomorrow that makes this vaporous life so precious, so worth living well, so worth defending, as Pastor Matthew reminded us last week. Over the last two months, we've made our way through the wisdom of the teacher. We've we've seen how he sought fulfillment in all things. He talked about pursuing uh, joy in wealth and in wisdom and in wisdom and in women, only to be disappointed by their failure to satisfy in a deep way, who noted the inevitability, the inescapability of the absurdities of life, that we often, we don't reap what we sow. We don't often get the rewards that we worked for, that death doesn't discriminate, as Aaron Burr might say, between the sinner and the saint. Lisa reminded me of that lyric this week. The series on Ecclesiastes has been, it's been one of my favorite series. Um, because Ecclesiastes is a book that doesn't avoid the realities of life. The hard things, the conundrums, the, the injustices. And at the same time, it doesn't wallow forever in despair. It makes room for nuance. It makes room for complexity in the same way I think that much of the Bible does. I think that God absolutely does when we take time to sit still and listen. So often we rush around like chickens with their heads cut off because we're afraid of what will happen when we stop. We're afraid of what will happen if people actually see what's inside, all that we've pushed down and run away from, or all that we've dressed up and tried to pass off as strength. If anything, I think Ecclesiastes has put a mirror up to ourselves by saying the quiet parts out loud. Many of the things we've thought, many of the things we've felt, See, despite that catchphrase that everything is pointless, the book of Ecclesiastes has profound hope in it. We've been reminded these last two months that we are better together. That oppression is best confronted by people standing in solidarity with one another. That as Leroy Barber noted, even overwhelming systemic injustice can be combated by individual actions by you and by me that we have a part to play. And as Starlet Thomas demonstrated, holding space to share the burden of each other's suffering is a sacred act. And this, all of this is part of what it looks like to live wisely. All of this is part of what it looks like to be wise. That's the journey we've walked over the last two months, the first nine chapters of Ecclesiastes. And let me encourage you, uh, if, you if you missed a week or three, or if you're just joining us, please, I, I'd encourage you to go back and listen um, our small group conversations, our prayer times, the conversations outside of uh, Sunday gatherings have been so rich uh, because we've been navigating this book while engaging with one another and with, uh, with God and with our chaotic and challenging world. And while I'm here, let me also plug small groups, um, which is our main vehicle for discipleship in community. Uh, we have about six weeks left of the semester, and if you can, jump in now, I, it's better than waiting until January. I promise. Today is our last week in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you've been keeping track in your Bibles, uh, that means we actually have three chapters to cover today. 10 through 12. Because Andrea was giving assignments and gave me this one before she went on sabbatical. <laughs> uh, I won't have time to dive into all three in depth today, but I do want to sort of give an express tour of chapters 10 and 11 to serve as signposts as you read through them yourselves. So chapter 10, it reads very much like uh, the book of Proverbs, which in our Bibles is, is right before Ecclesiastes. It's an assorted collection of sayings loosely based around a theme of foolishness, foolishness. Now in the Hebrew Bible, foolishness was about stupidity and wrongheadedness, but more precisely it was the opposite of wisdom, of living well. Maybe most important, it was the opposite of worshiping God. So in chapter 10, the teacher decries foolish behavior and foolish actions that individuals undertake, but he also denounces foolish rulers. He denounces foolishness in places of power. To give you a taste, he says, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, the kind of mistake that comes from people in power. Fools are appointed to high posts, fools who make decisions that undermine living well. Decisions that fly in the face of the character and the nature of God. Chapter 10 feels so relevant, not just now, but certainly now. But I will let that quick summary be enough for now. As we've made our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher has become more and more clear-eyed. In the early chapters of the book, we had a lot of angsty philosophizing is what it felt like to me. A lot of hand-wringing with the occasional glimpse of clarity, the occasional... You know, um, eat and drink and enjoy your life, because that's our lot. Or um, life is short, so enjoy what you can. Or many things are meaningless, but God is not. There were occasional nuggets that, that remained once we'd sifted through the chaos and the resulting questioning. But in chapter 11, the second to last chapter of the book, the teacher exhorts his readers, wrestling through the meaninglessness, wrestling through the pointlessness of life, and he exhorts them to faith, and he exhorts them to faithful action, even though he immediately follows this by saying, it's still pointless and meaningless. It's absurd. Even still, he advises his readers to act as best as you can, to do what is yours to do without any guarantees of the outcome. After all that is life, isn't it? We know that saying, hindsight is 20 Or as the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it, life can only be understood backward, but it must be lived forward. It can only be understood backward, but we can only live life forward. When you go on a date, there are no guarantees that it will go well. When you apply for a job, you have no guarantees that you'll get it. When You marry someone, you have no idea what lies ahead of you both. When you decide to try to have a kid, you have no idea what that journey will look like. When you move somewhere, you leave a community or a relationship, when you start therapy, when you hit rock bottom and finally admit you have a problem, when you take a risk, you try to trust God again, when you find yourself back in church after a long time away, goodness, when you open your eyes in the morning, you have little guarantee of what the day will hold, whether calamity or comfort. At any and every moment, decision, stage in life, fork in the road, we do not and we cannot map out and engineer all the things that we want and engineer out all the things we do not. In this life, we have to live with uncertainty. That is what faith is. One of my favorite quotes is from the Austrian mystic and poet Rainer Maria Rilke, who shared with me many years ago. It's something that I have to regularly remind myself of, especially when things are particularly uncertain, unsettled, or unanswered. This is what Rainer Maria Rilke writes. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms, like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. In this life, we have to live with uncertainty. That is what faith is. And that is why chapter 12, the last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, begins with, remember your creator. Remember your creator. Faithfulness is not just flailing, although it may feel like it sometimes. And foolishness is not just whatever the person you disagree with thinks faithfulness and foolishness are defined in relation to God our creator the one who made us and all made all of us in their image the one who knit us together in our mother's womb the one who grieves whenever we defile or deny or debase the image of godness of another person or fail to honor our own image of godness our own imprinted dna our own crafted purpose, which is to show the world what God is like. So easy, it's so natural, it's so expected from an evolutionary standpoint to look out for me and mine, for ours and, and ourselves and those we know and love or those who are like us, which ironically is actually not reflecting God at all. And that is especially so in hard times. In the days of trouble, as the teacher would call them, those years about which you will say, I take no pleasure in these. And then he uses language found elsewhere in scripture that describes the end times, when the sun and the light grow dark, and the moon and the stars too, when the housekeepers tremble and the strong men stoop, when the women who grind stop working because they're so few, and those who look through the windows grow dim, distressed, depressed hopeless, when the doors to the street are shut, when the sound of the mill, sound of bustling, life-giving labor fades, when people are afraid of things above and of terrors along the way. And here I cannot help but think of our siblings in Israel and Gaza, afraid of things above and terrors along the way. But I also think of folks in Maine and across the country, and here in our city, grieving yet more lives lost to gun violence and more trauma inflicted by our nation's gun sickness. Surely, if we could engineer the outcomes, it would look different. Surely. If you've been around any length of time on this earth, you know what it is to experience loss. Even our kids and teens are raised doing active shooter drills in schools. Even if they never experience such a situation, which we pray, the loss of innocence is a death of itself, isn't it? That's not to mention all of the other ways our differences get used to divide and decimate us, particularities of age and gender and race and sexuality and na- national origin and ability and all the ways that God has made each one of us unique. Someone probably could and maybe has made that a reason to otherize us. And that's a death of a kind. Then the teacher uses language to describe actual death when the human goes to the eternal abode. When the silver cord snaps and the gold bowl shatters and the jar is broken at the spring and the wheel is crushed at the pit, when dust returns to the earth as it was before, and the life breath returns to the God who gave it. The teacher saying, before things get really grim, and definitely before you die, remember your creator. And we might say, well, it's a little late for that first part. Things are already pretty grim. It's actually a poetic device that the teacher is using here at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, 11 chapters ago in chapter 1. He sets a scene of busyness, of activity, of hard work, of the wind blowing and the streams flowing, and he says, there's nothing new under the sun. It's all meaningless. It's all pointless. And here at the end of the book, he sets a scene of desertion and death, of a haunting silence, and he says, in the absence of activity, there is still one worth remembering, God. What it means to remember God is to remember who God is so you can remember who you are so you can remember who everyone else is so you can remember remember what our universe is all about beneath the chaos and the cruelty that is all too common and can so easily cloud our memory we remember the God who sees as Hagar named him in Genesis the God who is as Moses experienced God in Exodus your creator the one who made you, the one who made all things in the beginning, we remember God. So what does it mean for you? What does it mean for you in your everyday life to remember God? What does it look like? How do you take the time to be reminded of who God is, of who you are, of who everyone you encounter is, when the powers and the principalities, the busyness and the pressures of this life try to make us forget? What impact does it make on your actions, your conversations, your vocation, your time, your energy to remember who God is, to remember who you are, to remember who everyone you encounter is? What does it look like for you to remember God? This is how Ecclesiastes ends, after reiterating again in case you forgot that everything is pointless, meaningless, and absurd. So this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Worship God and keep God's commandments because this is what everyone must do. God will definitely bring every deed to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or bad. And that's it. It's the end of Ecclesiastes, this beautiful, unsettling journey through life's circumstances and questions, wondering what it's all worth and wondering why God doesn't act when the wicked prosper and the righteous perish. Some people are really disappointed with the ending of the book because it seems so conventional. The raw honesty resonates with us, but the, the, the rule following seems regressive, religious. And what's this about God's judgment? I know that that can be a hard metaphor to hold. God is Judge. Especially if you've been raised with a particular image of God waiting for you to screw up so we can jot your name in the incident in a book to bring up at a later date. I get that. But if you've ever been on a side that has been wronged, mistreated, marginalized, otherized, demonized, abused, or treated as less than, and then not been believed not been allowed to speak, not been given a chance to defend yourself, not been given the benefit of the doubt or a fair shot, then having God as a just judge, the one who has the power to name what is right and wrong, the one who sees all things, even the things hidden from human sight, well, that's something to hold on to. It's something to have hope in. That was the case for many of the original hearers of Scripture, the people of Israel and the Hebrew Bible and the early church in the New Testament. The end of the matter, at the end of the day, worship God and keep God's commandments. To me, this is the link to the very first verse of the chapter when we were told to remember your Creator. To worship God and keep God's commandments is what it means to remember God. We remember who God is as truly as we can in worship, and we show that we remember who God is, the one in whose image we are made, as we do what God told us to do, made us to do, keeping God's commandments. In the Hebrew Bible, those commandments would have been in the law of Moses, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, do not covet your neighbor's belongings or land, do not kill, do not commit adultery, and so on. The teacher of Ecclesiastes, as usual, invites us to hold both the enjoyment of life, pursuit of what we think is good, repeated refrain as well, and the acknowledgement of our responsibility, freedom and responsibility together, enjoyment and accountability together, both in our own lives and in life as a whole, regarding our own lives, chapter 11. Chapter 11 contains one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9. Now, to give some backstory, it was a mentor of mine who told me about Ecclesiastes 11:9 when I was in my early 20s and overly concerned with doing everything right, uh, with being responsible, with doing what needed to be done. I was either uh, just about to get out of or just about to get back into a long-term relationship, and I was feeling really stuck because... I just wanted to do the right thing, and I assumed there was just one right thing to do. And into that emotional and existential, well, despair sounds a little dramatic, but let's go with that. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 9 says, you who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see and know. And for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Freedom and accountability. It's so holding the two together, freedom to enjoy the life God has given us and accountability for our actions because life is not just about us. Holding these two together didn't mean I didn't have to choose or that it was always clear or that I didn't have any regrets, but it did mean I was actually able to enjoy the life God had given me a little more, to actually allow myself to feel joy without also feeling guilty. Some of you here will lean more into that freedom part, the enjoyment part, that will come a bit more naturally. You don't need to be told to follow the ways of your heart internally or whatever your eyes see outside you, but you may need to be reminded that your actions have consequences. And they have consequences not just for you, but for others too. Others here are more on the side of responsibility. You are reliable. You get things done. Perhaps you wonder if there is more to life than duty, or if there will be a day when you don't feel like you have to pick up everyone's slack. For you, perhaps the invitation is to loosen your grip. For all of us, after nine weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes, I want to finally share with you the meaning of life, as we promised and advertised in our series title, <laughs> The Meaning of Life. It's been really interesting trying to navigate this nuanced and complex book, which reflects the nuances and complexities of life. It's actually, been, it's actually been quite hard to do a chapter at a time without reference to the whole book. It's been hard to do a few verses at a time without continually coming back to the whole It always feels like there's something else to say, to to clarify, to to balance, to round out. and, And all of that also feels very much in the character of the teacher, of the book itself. So, what's the meaning of life? Ready? Love. The meaning of life is love. Let me tell you how I get there. The closing exhortations of Ecclesiastes are to remember God and to worship God and to do what God commands because what God commands is a reflection of who God is and it reveals who we are as those made in God's image. What were the two commandments that Jesus said were the greatest commandments on which all of the law and prophets hang? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. What is the action? What is the commandment to love? What is the character of God revealed in Jesus in whom the Apostle Paul tells us is found the fullness, all of the fullness of God? God is love. Jesus is love in human form, and so we remember our Creator. We worship God. We do what God commands by loving Fourth century, Bishop Augustine of Hippo said, love, love, and do what you will. Whether you hold your peace through, through love, hold your peace. Whether you cry out through love, cry out. Whether you correct through love, correct. Whether you spare through love, do you spare. Let the root of love be within of this root. Can nothing spring but what is good? Love is the meaning of life, and we find meaning in life when we learn, as we learn, to love as best we can in a world where love seems meaningless, seems pointless, it seems absurd. Loving in the face of hatred, loving in the face of violence, in the face of evil, in the face of suffering, loving in the face of disappointment and despair and death, it is not easy to choose love. It does not always make sense. It often does not. Jesus chose love at every step, and it led him to his death on our behalf, but it was also love that raised him from the dead. The God who is love is stronger than death. I believe that. I trust that, which means that I try to live as if that's true. That's what faith is, right? You're trying to live as if something is true, even if we don't have all the guaranteed outcomes. And for me, that is that the God of love is stronger than death. And so the invitation remains, dear children, let us love one another because love comes from God. When I began today, I asked you to look back on your week and think of one high and one low. And as I close today, I want to think of the week ahead. I want you to think of how you might choose love this week. How you might do something loving this week that that stretches you. For some that may be doing something, it may be saying something. For others it may be not doing something, not saying something. Maybe love this week looks like doing whatever is in your power to confront the evil and suffering in the world. And there is so much of it. There is so much unlove and so please hear that whatever is in your power clearly do what is yours to do you cannot save the whole world you are not called to it you are not carried called to carry all the pain of the world someone else did that already but all of us are called to do something this is what Rabbi Abraham Heschel said morally speaking there is no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of human beings indifference to evil is worse than evil itself. And in a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. Cole Arthur Riley, the author of Black Liturgies, posted this over the weekend. If your hope is waning, find those who can sustain it. And when the time comes, you will carry someone else's hope for them. No individual can resist despair on their own. We steady each other. We can't afford despair. So maybe love this week means looking out for those who are struggling and coming alongside them, carrying their hope for them for a few steps. However, you can show the world what the God of love looks like. However, you can show yourself what the God of love looks like. In a world that can at times seem suffocating, and pitch black tunnel with no light in sight, a hard place with no hope for joy, remember your Creator. God who is love. And remember that that God is with you. Would you pray with me? For our prayer today, I wanted to read a poem. It's written by the Irish poet Padre Gotuma. This poem is called The Facts of Life. facts of life, that you were born and you will die, that you will sometimes love enough and sometimes not, that you will lie if only to yourself, that you will get tired, that you will learn most from the situations you do not choose, that there will be some things that move you more than you can say that you will live, that you must be loved, that you will avoid questions most urgently in need of your attention, that you began as the fusion of a sperm and an egg, of two people who were once strangers and may well still be, that life isn't fair, that life is sometimes good and sometimes even better than good, that life is often not so good, that life is real. And if you can survive it, well, survive it well, with love and art and meaning given when meaning is scarce, that you will learn to live with regret, that you will learn to live with respect, that the structures that constrict you may not be permanently constricting, that you will probably be okay, that you must accept change before you die, but you will die anyway. So you might as well live, and you might as well love. You might as well love. You might as well love, love. amen.